being enraged, being angry about things that you see. If you stay in that, it, it will erode your your well-being and you will not be, be a very happy person or, or have a very uh, stable um, stable life. But if you direct that anger into action and and work in your your own space to try to create a difference, then I think it's it's okay to be angry and and you should be um, for for injustice and and some of the things that I'm witnessing in my own country and and can also see in in the conflicts in which I work. Catherine worked on cross-border stabilization programs in Syria over the last five years. This was a group of initiatives that aimed to support delivery of basic services and functioning local governance in opposition-held areas. And through this means, the thinking often went to check the influence of extremist factions. The goal of Catherine's work specifically was to track how these approaches were working out in an extraordinarily complex and violent and also rapidly evolving operating environment. Then on this basis to suggest the necessary adjustments to do better. Now viewed in retrospect, in middle of 2019, this raises some pretty sobering questions. The Syrian war has largely been resolved through violence, with clear winners and losers in many respects. So the lasting impact or relevance of this sort of local level or bottom-up approach is very much being called into question. So we talk about a number of things. What do we take away from a tragic course of events at the macro-political level? What does that mean for the, the relevance and the utility of local-level civilian-led stabilization efforts? What does that mean going forward for the next regional crises, the next mega-crisis that demands a large-scale and, and coordinated response? Uh, interestingly, we also get into the ironic situation of coming back to increasingly dysfunctional politics in our own countries, and what this means when you have spent all of your time and energy uh, for much of your adult life trying to help with problems abroad and have been faced with the question of your own civic responsibility. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy. Wonderful. Well, firstly, thank you for doing this again. Uh, I generally start these with a, a, a fairly simple one, which is where your accent is from. Maybe obvious in your case, but maybe not. I actually don't know. <laughs> actually, when I I'm from Pennsylvania, uh, and and when I go back home now, because I've spent um, ten years living in the UK and Lebanon and Turkey. People back home will ask me, where are you from? You have an accent. And you say, I'm from here. And then they say, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you sound different. <laughs> walk, walk me through the steps here. You, you start in Pennsylvania. From there, you go to university locally, I believe. 
Um, I went, my bachelor's is from uh, Penn State University. And after university, I went into the U.S. Army. Uh, and that's that sort of started um, the trajectory that led me into um, this sector. I ended up in Afghanistan um, for a deployment in 2002. And eventually, that's what sparked my interest in doing this um, kind of work as a civilian. And eventually ended up at the University of York in the UK, um, studying for master's in post-war recovery studies in 2009. And from there to? Well, I worked at the university as a research fellow at the post-war recovery. Yes, you were there for four years now. Yes, yes. And then I landed at the company that I'm currently working for, Integrity. And they're a consulting firm that, you know, began as a research monitoring evaluation firm. So it really fit nicely into the work I was doing at, at the university. And I've been working with Integrity for the last five years. And that's what first led me to Kenya, then Lebanon. And the last the last project I was working on was in Turkey for four and a half years. Now, I will come back to the, the U.S. Army base because... <laughs> That is, it's fair to say that's an outlier amongst the uh, yes the guests on this particular program, uh, but is is for that reason interesting. I'll, I'll come back to that, but just for for context, uh, this work you were doing on Syria from Turkey for four and a half years. How would you explain that if you met someone socially, you know, at the pub, at a, a wedding, whatever? Or explain it to my grandmother. Um... That's actually that's a better way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> well. It- very roundabout. And I often wonder if you have to take five minutes to explain your job, what sort of job you actually had. I, I begin by saying, well, you know, um, humanitarian crises or conflicts and, and how the U.S. or the U.K. will provide humanitarian aid or development support to, to those countries. Well, the work I do is sometimes those those governments want to have greater assurance that things are working well and the programs are doing what they say they're doing. Um, and so they they hire companies like the one I work for to do additional monitoring, sort of like an audit uh, in a way. And, and that's what I do. That is quite uh, content <laughs> neutral, though. <laughs> The, the programs are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yes. Um, I, I usually didn't go into that detail because I, I usually try to stop the conversations about what I do in a pub. Um, <laughs> because they usually end up with someone accusing me of being a spy and that gets rather tiresome. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. It's okay. <laughs> So what sort of thing are we talking about? At a concrete level. So I work primarily on the stabilization side of of crisis response. And so that looks like support to local governance structures, like local councils. It can be support to education systems and, and ensuring that children are still able to go to school, even in the middle of, of ongoing violent conflict, 
support to health systems, um, keeping health clinics open or establishing uh, clinics um, where they, you know, they've been destroyed uh, in the conflict, programs like that. So when you're talking about programming in conflict, that you're, you're in a high-risk environment, um, risk to the people who are implementing the program, risk to the people who you're partnering with and providing support to. So what ends up happening is you have this rather long delivery chain, starting with the, the donor government who's providing the money for this program to the implementer, whether that's the UN agency or um, a for-profit company or an international uh, NGO. And often those organizations will then partner with other organizations. Again, they can be international NGOs or local, um, in in the case of Syria, local Syrian organizations who then do the actual project activities, whether that's, you know, providing stipends or um, ensuring that that medicine and other medical equipment get to the medical facilities or actually providing um, medical care. So there are several links in the chain when you're and when you're looking at programming in conflict or humanitarian crises. And I think that's where that's where a team like mine would come in because there are so many risks to government staff who would normally, like if you're looking at a place like Kenya, where it's easier, the risks are minimal you can go out from the embassy or the consulate where you're working and actually see the work being implemented. You can talk to say the local government officials that you're supporting or, you know, talk to the farmers if you're running a, you know, agricultural livelihoods program. And in Syria, that's not possible. So donors want added assurance that programs are running the way the way that they are intended. So over the past 10, 15, 20 years, third-party monitoring, like what my team was doing, is becoming more and more the norm. And it it is that added eyes and ears in high-risk situations for donor governments and implementers to to have a better understanding of how things are working, um, better understanding of unintended consequences, both positive and ne- uh, negative, and and just get a bigger picture, a more nuanced picture of of how things are running. Mm. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it would be difficult to uh, <laughs> communicate all of the nuances to one's grandmother, but the... Departure, I guess, from a uh, audit, uh, as most people would understand the term, is it's there's a question of impropriety and, and proper use of resources, but also this uh, very rapidly evolving and to outsiders very um, confusing and opaque situation. You know, there's potential to not just have money disappear, but also to 
have quite perverse outcomes, I would think, if you're not. Yes. And I think that has been one of the most significant challenges um, with this type of programming in Syria. Syria is the most complex conflict I have worked on, and, and my work has has focused primarily on fragile and conflict-affected states. And it's not, not a joke, but, you know, I started out with my deployment in Afghanistan, and it seemed quite straightforward in, in 2002 uh, when I was deployed. And my work has subsequently taken me to Sudan and Somalia. And you, th- you think Somalia is a, is a complex conflict, um, but Syria has, has really, I've, I've never seen anything so complex from the, the local level dynamics um, all the way up to bringing in international interests and it changes so rapidly so trying to ensure that the people implementing these programs and the donors have reliable nuanced understanding of those dynamics as they change so they can then adapt and and safeguard to the extent possible um, their programs is is quite a challenging job. Can you walk me through what this looks like? I mean, say we're in northwest Syria. I don't know if that's a good example for you or not, but uh, Idlib is very much in the um, in the news at the moment, again, for uh, all the wrong reasons. These programs are attempt, attempting to support um, a selection of local uh, institutions, stakeholders, and to avoid supporting or indeed to sort of counteract other groups, institutions, stakeholders. So at a, at a practical level, what does that actually look like? Well, I think, I think it's important to note that a lot of the stabilization programming that was going on in Northwest Syria specifically has closed down because over the past year, uh, year and a half, that space um, where you had relatively moderate opposition groups that you could channel resources in or communities that were held by the more moderate opposition groups um, that you could support, that space has shrunk dramatically. And what has been left are the extremist armed groups that are considered prescribed terrorist organizations by Western donors. So right now, that type of programming really isn't tenable. So what you see is the humanitarian support, support to the White Helmets, but the the larger stabilization programming that I worked on, you know, from 2014 until early this year, that that's no longer there because there aren't really viable moderate alternatives at a scale that governments can can support without running the risk that that support is going to end up in the hands of of an extremist armed group 
And what, what you've seen is the shift towards northeast Syria, where Kurdish groups and, and their Arab allies are you know, taking control of areas and um, pushing ISIS out of communities. And that type of work to rebuild places like Raqqa can, can start. When stabilization programming in northwest Syria was running at scale, again, you had a very fragmented um, you know, group of, of partners that you could work with. And it was was trying to decipher alliances that were constantly shifting. You'd have fragmenting um, armed groups that would split off from each other and then come back a couple months later. And it, it was it was very difficult, I think, to keep up with that um, and to to know that who you could rely on as a, as a partner for this type of work. Mm. And was there a case where that uh, approach yielded positive outcomes? I mean, obviously not an unmitigated success, but, you know, were there occasions where you thought, okay, this is uh, achieving at least some of its objectives? I do. And you have to understand kind of how the, the trajectory of the the conflict, as well as the the support to opposition, evolved to understand why we got or how we got to to the situation where we are today. And I say that in, in my own personal perspective on this is that to do stabilization work really well, you need to have and and I hate this term, but boots on the ground. You need to be, you need to be able to provide the stability and rule of well, I think rule of law is perhaps going too far, but at least control that operating space to give that type of programming the room, the room to take root and and to grow. And we never had that in Syria. I don't think we were ever going to have that in Syria. Uh, so I say all of this with that caveat. But at the at the beginning of the conflict, you know, I think there was this impetus to to support democratic or efforts to have a democratic Syria. So that meant, okay, looking around, who who can we support? In the early days, there were actors who were controlling rather large parts of Syria where that type of, of programming, if you wanted to, to support efforts to create a um, government that was responsive to its citizens and provided services, there you could make a very strong case that this type of programming was appropriate. When the trajectory of the conflict dramatically changed with with Russia um, providing direct military support to the Syrian government um, beginning in in the end of September 2015 mm-hmm. and that space for the the moderate opposition and and that type of programming began to shrink what you're left with is a dilemma of 
managing decline. And the question becomes, if we stop this support abruptly, are we not doing more harm um, than trying to continue in, in this space where there are very few partners, um, the partners you do have are not necessarily um, the one, the, the major parties in the conflict are controlling less and less uh, geographic territory. And, you know, groups, extremist armed groups are putting increasing pressure on communities and local governance structures. And it, it just becomes an incredibly challenging place to work without crossing donor red lines. I think you saw this with the the white helmets in southern Syria uh, when the government took control of of, um, southern Syria, that here you've been working with partners for years. And as the government takes control of territories, the risk to those partners that they're going to be you know, the best case scenario is that they're going to be arrested. What is your obligation to those partners um, if you're going to withdraw support? Yeah, that's a a good uh, or for me helpful perspective to add. Actually, because the yeah the stereotype sort of view is that well, policy was based on the idea that Assad would lose the war, and then that didn't happen, and then uh, the approach sort of. <laughs> you know, no longer made sense, right? If you're watering these fragile saplings of, of moderate democratic actors um, in the hope that they will have sunlight to grow into and then the circumstances change, then the approach becomes invalidated. But of course, Western actors engaged there are already a good way down the path. So it's not like you could flip approach midstream. And it's not like it was obvious that the course of events was going to change in uh, as as final a fashion as it ultimately did. No, and the thing about Syria is that it changes in ways you least expect. So making policy and programming decisions based on different scenarios is is almost impossible because the thing that you don't think is going to happen will happen. And it will change in in ways that could have um, positive impacts for your programming. So you know, a really good example is um, Turkey going into large parts of of Aleppo and Idlib. And this had two different effects. One, it shut down several um, stabilization programs within that Turkish held area. But in Idlib, where they had, where they established observation points, that actually created stability in communities that allowed those programs to to actually operate without worrying about the conflict and and pressure from different factions. So it, it had this positive effect for several months on the programming that was happening there. There are cases where you think there's a sort of durable law or lasting benefits of this kind of stabilization support over the last, it's tailing off now, of course, but for the four or five years it lasted, the cases where that has sort of added up to, you know, some kind of durable benefit? That is something that I can't say 
with any evidence. And, you know, in integrity, you know, our our mission is to help donors and implementers make decisions based on evidence and understanding of the context. So I, I really hesitate to say this, but I I do think that if we come back five five mm. years from now, that there will be an an impact perhaps more at the individual or local community level. And I do think that there's something to be said for supporting people, um, you know, in different ways. It's not just about that immediate life-saving humanitarian aid of food and shelter. There is something to be said for ensuring that children have a place to go to school and in the middle of an incredibly traumatizing life events that occur on a regular basis, um, having a space of Mm -hmm. relative normalcy um, and hope. I think there's something to be said for trying to change the paradigm of what, for example, policing can mean in Syria, where it doesn't have to be heavy-handed. It can be based on interactions between police officers and community members that are positive. And I, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that even if the, the conflict didn't end as we were expecting or indeed hoping, that those efforts have resulted in something even if it is at, at a smaller level and not the, the longer term, bigger objectives that you're originally hoping for in 2013 or 14 or working towards. Hope that you are enjoying this one. A quick reminder, there are simple ways that you can help us to keep doing this. Share the episode with anyone who might be interested. Sign up for the email list at onestepforward.fm. If you're an iTunes user, write us a quick review there. This kind of thing really does make it easier to produce independent content without a a brand or an institutional agenda to push. So I do appreciate whatever you're able to do in that regard. Let's get back to it. For someone who is following Syria only, very anecdotally, uh, much of what they hear is going to be around the Geneva or Astana processes or, um, you know, Trump making a phone call to Erdogan or, or what have you, this sort of very macro political stuff. How did that intersect with the mechanics of this sort of programming? You have this very high level, very equally maybe complex political game happening at an international level, and then you have these very local level programs um, that you are then in turn you know, playing a, a uh, supporting role on? Well, I think where you see the intersections would be in the Geneva process um, because what the the stabilization programs were trying to achieve ultimately was to say there is an alternative, a viable alternative to the Assad government and building that up to be able to participate 
as as a strong player in that process with a lot of backing from the international and 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 donor governments so that that came in different ways that came through you know train and equip programs and and working with armed groups to to build their capacity to to sit at that negotiating table um and and be recognized it came through um the support to governance structures and identifying members of of different you know levels whether that's regional or or local councils who who could be part of of those negotiating teams as well as demonstrating you know that here is a a police force that is ready and capable of providing policing services, you know, civilian policing services in opposition areas. It was about creating partners who could sit on the other side of, of the negotiating table. And in, in practice, as, as the Syrian regime has sort of reestablished control with mm. Russian support, it's been um, negotiating or in reality imposing these bilateral sort of deals, uh, almost locality by locality, right? Um, the, uh, is it Muslacha, something like that? Uh, these reconciliation, quote unquote, agreements that they push localities into signing sort of almost one by one, right? To separate them and, and, and ensure they have kind of maximum leverage in that negotiation. Can, can the community sort of assets and um, organizing capabilities and, and uh, more capable and moderate personalities can all that survive this process it's really hard for me to say because you you hear stories of people being arrested following these reconciliation agreements so while i i, I would like to think mm. that that's possible I don't think with the way the Syrian government approaches um, communities who were formerly held by the opposition, um, that that's incredibly likely. I do want to, to make the distinction between the northeast of Syria um, and, say, the south or, or the northwest. Mm. Um, Areas that are held by by Kurdish groups are it's it's quite different dynamics there. There there's the big differences in in the different regions. Um, but you know if you if you look at how things have gone in in southern Syria or you know in, in other places in the northwest where the government has taken over, I I don't necessarily think that the local councils or other governance institutions that the the west western coalition has supported necessarily remain intact or you know be able to to play a big role in whatever comes next in those in those areas because I mean, the perspective of the syrian government is and and the narrative that the Syrian government has you know, put around the opposition is that they are terrorists. Mm. It's quite sobering, not for um, four and a half years of your life. 
it's it's been quite hard to watch. Um, and I think moving back to DC, having a couple of months to start to digest it, uh, it's it's definitely starting to to hit me um, in, in ways that you don't really expect. Mm. And do you take something positive from that? And you mentioned that the sort of service delivery and, and quality of life stuff during the conflict, which is is obviously not nothing by any stretch. But do you take away some positives from that experience working on, on this kind of intervention for, you know, what's a, a pretty pretty considerable length of time for, for high stress work? I think starting at the personal level, I I take away the experience of working with an incredible team. My team was small. It was majority of, of the people on my team were Syrian and they were just highly motivated, very dedicated and hardworking and wanting to do something positive in the middle of their country falling apart and watching each of them had very difficult personal circumstances and watching them um, navigate those with with grace and resilience was an incredibly humbling thing for me and to see at a personal level um, the enormous capacity that humans have for kindness and and, and grace in in the face of a lot of pain and suffering is a thing that that I take away from that on a personal level and I do from from the big picture you know the work that went into Syria um, not just the the program that I was monitoring but the humanitarian work the other stabilization programs you know, particularly, I, I keep going back to to education, and it's it's because in my my previous job at the university, I worked in education emergencies, and it is something that is is often neglected in humanitarian crises because people are so focused on the immediately um, or immediate life saving aid, but ensuring that children don't lose out entire generation of children don't lose out on on education is so important that's one of the things that that i i take away that even in the midst of incredibly violent conflict i think the work that was going on to create some sort of stability and normalcy in in people's lives it's worth doing You also, that type of programming is trying to address those, the roots of conflict and ensuring that um, when the conflict does end, there's a space for peace building reconciliation to, to take hold. And, and to me, that 
that is work worth doing. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting um, reversal or, or inversion of the usual meaning of stabilization, right? The, at the household level or at the individual level, without expectation of a, a final resolution, there are there are things that can be done to sort of normalize to some small extent people's living conditions and sort of life trajectories despite the fact of conflict. Sort of an interesting twist on the the way in which we usually use the term, which is this very grizzled political operator um, view of, of you know minimum conditions of security and so forth. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the the shifts perhaps in my perspective over the past four and a half years. You know, we're often looking at it from the bird's eye kind of strategic level view of this type of programming. But where you might see results more immediately or where you're making an impact in someone's life is at that granular level. And it doesn't lend itself to easy monitoring or or everyone talks about attribution like you want to make sure that the money that mm. governments are providing is paying for the results that you want to see um and how do you how do you evidence that a lot of times the programs where you get the stories from the you know the people who have received the aid or who are going to the health clinic in their communities rather than taking the harrowing journey like 10 kilometers down the road, that is really hard to quantify. Mm. And being able to aggregate all of those stories of how this has impacted my life and to show how these programs are making that larger level impact, that's, that's the challenge and something that we're not necessarily doing consistently or doing in a way beyond X number of patients came into the health clinic, or we provided X number of meals um, to people. It's asking that question of, you know, so what? So you provided this, mm. this assistance. How how did that impact people's lives? What what changed for them? And I think that's it's one of the things that I really appreciate working with the company I, I work with because they're they're asking those questions and and trying to get those answers and translate it into evidence that can shape programming and and can shape the way that we think about this type of programming. Was the donor community open to having that conversation? I mean we tend to use this black and white or, or we use a language that reflects the political interests of people paying for programming. We talk about stable, non-stable, extreme, moderate. You know, does this contribute to an end state where moderate actors, you know, have some approximation of influence and control on the ground? And that's a very, uh, A, it's quite ambitious in that context, given the prevailing trends. And B, it doesn't leave a lot of room for the kind of stuff you're describing? I think I was very fortunate to work 
with a group of donors, and there were several on, on the program who were very much interested in that, who really understood how complex the Syrian conflict was. Many of them were working on the Syrian response for as long as I was. So they also understood the the contextual dynamics and the challenges that they were facing and, and were very realistic about what was possible. And I, I haven't seen a group of donors. And if you have different governments sitting around the table, each of them has their own national interests and policies, you know, the framework that they have to work in. But they they wanted to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen that necessarily in other contexts or other conflicts. Um, and it it was quite refreshing. Now that doesn't mean that everything that they might have wanted to do sitting in Istanbul or Gaziantep was possible because of policies or, or, or strategies, but they were being quite realistic about what was possible and what they, they could achieve. And they wanted those, those stories of how their support was changing the lives for people living in those communities. And it was actually one of the the enjoyable parts of of the work that Integrity was doing as third-party monitors for that program was having those conversations with donors on a regular basis. Mm, I I realize that you uh, have probably not spent the time (laughs) that would be required to, to state this in a extremely specific and concise way, but do you have big takeaways on the viability of this kind of model, you know, this local stabilization model, because it will, it will arise again. Um, there'll be another, maybe not quite as messy and as, as violent as Syria, but there will be another situation like that. And you can argue that there are a couple elsewhere in the world at the moment on smaller scale. But do you have sort of big takeaways on on the capacity to do something constructive, sort of the limitations or opportunities that are there, you know, given the resources we have, given the security constraints, necessity to work through local partners, et cetera? Um, well, I, I have concerns that because of particularly the U.S., mm-hmm. The U.S. experience in Iraq and Afghanistan and now Syria, that the interest in stabilization um, and their willingness to invest in. Yeah. on the wane. Um, It's fair to say. You know, I I have concerns about that. What what I'd like to see, um, and this is perhaps some wishful thinking on my part. (laughs) Hit me. Love wishful thinking. I, I live in wishful thinking. I, I really would like to see the space open up for for us to try things, um, perhaps at that, that smaller scale, to make mistakes, to really invest in relationships with the people that we're working with, who are living in these communities that we're providing support, and really bringing them on as 
as real partners who inform the way program is designed and implemented. And I think, you know, over the past several years, there's there's been a lot of talk about this problem-driven iterative approach to programming. And I would really like to see that or elements of, of that take hold in the way that we do stabilization programming. Because I, I do think in conflict and fragile peace, you have to be iterative. You have to be flexible and respond to changing dynamics at that community level. And that's something that you saw in Syria very, very clearly is that the dynamics in one community were completely different from a neighboring community a couple kilometers down the road. And to be able to have stabilization programming that takes that into consideration and, and can adapt, that's what I would, I would really like to see. Whether that's possible um, or even practical, um, because governments are looking to do that large scale or making a, a big difference. So really focusing on that granular level is it's challenging because you're not necessarily going to have big blashy results. Um, but I think the work of stabilization and peace building and recon reconciliation after conflict, it's long and it's hard and it needs to be driven by the people who, who live there. Um, and I, I really, I wouldn't call it a mission because I just do one small sliver of this type of work, but that's, that's what drives me. That's what motivates me. That's what I think stabilization programming should be. I'm going to ask a slightly biographical question there. Um, cause you were one of these people who did not go straight from school into the bizarre world of, of international development. Um, you did you did other things instead, but then opted <laughs> to, to do that, thinking, I assume, that it was a, an appealing and attractive idea. <laughs> I make great life choices, Ian. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all? But what, um, I mean, you just, you just gave me sort of a, a, a mission state, a personal mission statement. I will, I will use that phrase, which makes a lot of sense and I think was sort of worded quite carefully in terms of what you think a, a useful and constructive role is. But 10 years ago, now you uh, pivoted from a stint in the US Army and then I think a law firm now and, and then decided to get into this, this sector. What did you have in mind at the time? I mean, what kind of ambition or, or expectation did you have to justify sort of what is a you know quite a big life decision you're getting into a sector that you know is going to require you to move around and 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 devote sort of most of your life to it i'm going to hugely disappoint you but i did not have a grand life plan um i don't think i ever have my experience in afghanistan I was there back in 2002, very early days, very different from what the the mission became. 
I was in a unit that was responsible for setting up the provincial reconstruction teams. And I was at headquarters in Kabul and it gave me a front row seat to the consternation and the humanitarian side of things that here's the the coalition, specifically the U.S. Army, encroaching into this humanitarian space. And quite frankly, in 2002, I really didn't know what a humanitarian space was. You know, my my training had been primarily on how to respond to national or natural disasters, and you know, like hurricanes. And it was just really interesting for me. And I thought, well, you know, I understand the military side of things. Wouldn't it be nice if someone who did understand how to work in the military was working on the civilian side and you could act as this kind of translator for these two very different worlds? So I went into my master's seven years later saying, I want to do civ mill coordination. At that point, that was what I thought I was best suited to do. And that changed a job at the university as a research fellow opened up. And even though, you know, at the age of 30, you would look at what I had done professionally at that point and say, none of these pieces really fit, you know, law firm, U.S. Army, now you're going to to do this like, international development work where where's the alignment? How do these puzzle pieces fit together? But it really has, from my army experience, I've I've drawn on the ability to work in tough, challenging environments, teamwork, really good planning skills. The law firm, you know, you learn how to ensure that you're presenting clear evidence for the argument that you're making. Um, and that all comes together in, in the type of work that I'm doing now. I guess none of that speaks to how I've arrived at that mission statement. That, I think, has come, and, and interestingly, I think it's become more than just a professional mission statement. I've, with my move back to the U.S., with the issues that you can see, not just in the US, but you look at the UK or other countries in Europe, I've, over the last couple of years, really drawn a line with the issues that I've been working on professionally to the issues that you know, my own country is grappling with. Like We have a humanitarian crisis that you know, our government has created on, on the border. We have conflict in our own society and have since we were founded. So how do I work on those issues as well as, as you know, the issues that professionally I've, I've been working on and grappling with? It's sort of come full circle for me personally over the last couple of years mm. as a fellow uh, resident of a politically fragile <laughs> western country i um certainly understand the point i i think it's it's interesting that that runs kind of counter to the 
standard advice in a way, right? Which is to carve out space for the professional stuff when you're working on these very difficult, very um, uh, emotionally intensive often kinds of things in, in, in fragile and conflict-affected places. So, you know, carve that off in a sense and keep your, your personal life a bit separate. Otherwise, uh, it becomes all-consuming. And you've kind of said the opposite. <laughs> yeah, don't take my advice. <laughs> Not necessarily as advice. I'm just curious how you... Um, how you manage that so that you're not in a state of kind of permanent political agitation or uh, I'm not going to say righteous fury, but you know, how do you, <laughs> how do you balance that with psychological and, and social well-being? I guess, at a practical level. I'm not sure that I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. I, I am pretty much constantly enraged at um, what I see in my own country. Um, no, I, 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 no top tips there. <laughs> well, I do actually, I do a lot of yoga. Um, when, when I was in Turkey, I, I did a lot of Pilates exercise, I think is, is the one thing that I've increasingly found is absolutely necessary. Um, just to maintain some sort of some sort of balanced. I'm reading a really interesting book right now by Rebecca Tracer uh, called Good and Mad, and it's it's about women's anger and and what you know politically what that has driven historically and and in the United States right now and what that kind of it really spoke to me because i think being enraged being angry about things that you see if you stay in that it it will erode your your well-being and and you know you will not be be a very happy person or or have a very uh, stable um stable life but if you direct that anger into action and and work in your your own space to try to create a difference, then I think it's it's okay to be angry and and you should be for for injustice and and some of the things that I'm witnessing in my own country and and can also see in in the conflicts in which I work. Um, it's about trying to find outlets for that. I'm not saying that I'm doing it very well, but it is a constant process. And moving back to the States, I'm looking at ways where I can become actively involved and make a difference in my own community. And yeah, so I'm I'm not sure that it works for everyone, but that is kind of where I've landed personally. So is that what's next for you? You'll you'll stay you'll stay in the States for the medium term, I guess, um, and try and do that kind of balancing act, or do you bounce back off to another conflict somewhere? Well, I I'd like to to stay in the US for a while. I've I've moved back to the closer to my parents 
um, they're getting older and I, I wanted to be, be closer to them and, and be able to help out as I'm needed. I've been supporting, um, short term assignments on some of Integrity's work in Somalia. They, they're doing third party monitoring there. So I've been able to offer my perspective and experience. Similarly, there's a third party monitoring for big multi-country migration program that, that we're just getting started. And I've, I've been supporting with that. So I'm, I'm staying engaged and, and working from our, our U S office and, Yes, trying to find ways where I can can stay involved in the international uh, development space and work to to be involved in my own community as well. Mm. Not an easy one, unfortunately, to balance in my experience. Any good tips? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, well, my uh, my family is uh, completely on the other side of the world, so <laughs> I'm not doing a great job in that regard. And the UK is uh, pretty much falling apart, so <laughs> I'm certainly uh, not achieving much there either. Yeah, I think that's one of you'd ask about takeaways from from Syria earlier, and that really is one of the things that. I can see if you know one person in the sector is is saying how can I make a difference for me it was making a difference in the lives of my team and providing them with the, the space to supportive environment in which to work and I think for me at the personal level being able to do that and ensuring that we are able to bring the voices of the people um, in the communities where we're working into the evidence and recommendations to the donors and implementers that we're working with. Um, that's, that's my big takeaway. Mm. No regrets then? Absolutely none. You are listening to One Step Forward. As you've just heard, these are candid conversations about public service in hard times and tough places. As always, I have to really thank our guests for their insights and above all for their honesty in sharing their experiences. But it's also important to thank everybody else who's engaged in that common purpose in moving things forward that little bit at a time, one problem after the next when things are very grim and when the overall trends are not encouraging, when you are persisting in the face of difficulties. My name is Ian Quick. Please do get in touch if you have feedback at onestepforward.fm. For now, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.